Welcome back to this magnificent series that we have on the hidden spring journey to the source of consciousness with our guest, Mark Soames. Welcome back, Mark. Good to be back, Gaiden. I'm absolutely loving it. And even better news for those people who love these deep dives, Mark has agreed to come back and do more because we simply won't do this book any justice by just doing two or three episodes. We're only on going on to <laughs> chapter three at this stage. And we've only touched the surface of those other chapters as well. We're going to touch today and focus on the cortical fallacy. So this was one of the departures that Mark took. I mentioned that he's a consciousness her heretic, and he departed from the well worn wisdom of the time to uncover the hidden spring. And we're going to fo focus, as I mentioned, on the cortical fallacy. I'm going to tee you up, Mark, with a quote from the start of that chapter, and please take it away. Here it goes. In late 2004, the neuroscientist Bjorn Merker joined five families with neurologically impaired children on a week-long trip to Disney World. The children ranged in age from 10 months to five years. They went on rides, they had their pictures taken with Mickey Mouse, they ate popcorn, corn dogs and ice cream, and they drank sodas galore. At times they seemed to become overwhelmed, there were tears on more than a few occasions. But despite these stressful moments, what struck Dr. Merker was how much the children seemed to be enjoying themselves, how they loved being there. After all, going by one of the most basic premises of neurology, these children should have been in a vegetative state. The thing that makes it so remarkable is that hydran encephalic children are born without a cortex. This is usually due to a massive stroke in utero, which results in reabsorption of the forebrain so that the baby's cranium is filled with cerebrospinal fluid instead of brain tissue, hence the term hydran encephaly which means water instead of an encephalon. Mouthful for me, Mark, come and speak for you. But let's share this remarkable story, which will bring us to the cortical fallacy. I'm, I'm glad that we have now some extra time. Um, now that we've agreed to do more than three uh, parts to this uh, conversation. Um, because this topic, the one that you've raised now, um, is is really fundamental to the whole book. And also, um, it requires a great deal of justification, uh, the proposal I'm making, because it, it is so at odds um, with one of the most basic assumptions of neuropsychology. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to be able to set my stall out uh, thoroughly. Um, just to be clear, because, uh, as Aidan said, as you said, it was a mouthful. Uh, that quotation from uh, my book that you've just read out uh, included various technical terms, which which will just befuddle uh, some of our audience. So, so um, these kids uh, that um, went uh, on that jaunt with their families um, and uh, Bjorn Merker, the neuroscientist. Uh, they suffer from a condition called hydranencephaly, uh, which 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 um, means they were born without a cortex. Um, some of them born without a cortex and other forebrain structures, uh, but the the defining feature of this condition is that they have no cortex uh, from birth. In fact, from from before birth, um, it's usually due to a massive stroke uh, before they're born. Um, but it's sometimes due to other pathologies. Uh, but the term is always refers to no cortex. Now, uh, please understand that does not mean no brain. Uh, it means no cortex. Uh, the, the, the convolutions that fill out uh, the, the cranium, uh, the, 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 that gray matter is gone. Uh, and the white tissues that connect that gray matter uh, to the brain stem. The brain stem is intact. It's a the much simpler, much more ancient part of the brain uh, at the bottom uh, that joins the brain to the spinal cord. Uh, that is preserved. It's entirely normal. 
but the cortex uh, is gone. Um, why that's so terribly important is because we have believed, uh, literally for centuries, uh, that the cortex is the seat of consciousness. Um, and if that were the case, if it's true that the cortex is the seat of consciousness, then children who are born with no cortex should be born with no consciousness. Um, in the extreme, uh, that would imply they should be unconscious. In other words, they should be comatose. Um, but uh, at the very least, what it should imply is that they suffer from something called persistent vegetative state, uh, which is also known by the phrase non-responsive wakefulness. Um, uh, why why uh, they might not be expected to be in a coma, but rather in a vegetative state, is because the vegetative functions, in other words, the autonomic uh, reflexive functions of the lower brain, of the brain stem, include the sleep-waking cycle. The sleep-waking cycle uh, is a is a is a automatized clockwork, uh, more or less, um, and so um, it's possible. Uh, it's theoretically possible that um, even if all you have is a brain stem, uh, that you might still have this vegetative uh, cycle between sleep and waking. But crucially, you have to understand that when I say waking uh, in the autonomic sense of the word, it, it would be blank wakefulness. That's uh, the vegetative state, uh, as I said, is also called non-responsive wakefulness. In other words, there's wakefulness, but there's nobody home. There's no responsivity. There's no interaction with the world, no perception, no memory, no thought, no volition. Um, that's what the persistent vegetative state looks like. So I've seen uh, and cared for many such patients, uh, how they, they're kept alive on life support. Uh, they lie uh, uh, prone in bed uh, 24 hours a day. Um, obviously, we have to turn them to prevent them from getting bed sores. But the crucial thing is that they, they show no initiative. They show no movement. They show no interest in the world. They don't track objects with their eyes. They're just completely blank. Uh, the only thing uh, that distinguishes them from comatose patients is that they go to sleep at night and in the morning their eyes open. They just lie there blankly, and then at night they go to sleep again. So if the cortex were the seat of consciousness, um, the most you could expect of these children born without cortex is that they would be in that state. Now, uh, why I devote a whole chapter uh, to this topic uh, in my book um, and open that chapter with the passage that Aidan read to you um, is that that is not what happens. Uh, that prediction is not confirmed. Uh, therefore, there's something wrong with the hypothesis. If the hypothesis that the cortex is the seat of consciousness, because those children that Aiden just described to you, eating corn dogs and you know and drinking soda pop and enjoying Mickey Mouse and so on, they've got no cortex. So how does that happen? Um, they are not only uh, aware of the of the of things going on around them, uh, they respond to those things, and they respond to those things appropriately. By which I mean, uh, they show appropriate emotion, and that's the crucial thing. They're not unconscious; uh, their consciousness is not blank. Uh, it is filled with content and quality, not the same as yours and mine. Um, it's, I'm not saying that these children are normal. I'm not saying that their consciousness is normal. I'm saying that consciousness is present. In other words, they wake up in the morning and they go to sleep at night. In fact, these kids, unfortunately, also have seizure disorders. So they lose consciousness when they have a seizure. And even their parents can see that she's gone, she's back again. Um, but not only do they show consciousness in that sense of, of, of wakefulness, but uh, they also show feeling. Uh, so there's a quality to that wakefulness. It's not blank. Uh, there's a content to that wakefulness. Um, it's not just a level of arousal uh, that, 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 that sort of switches on the lights. 
there are different colors uh, in those lights and there are events that are happening and the children are responding to those events and they're responding to them emotionally. So that, for example, um, if you, uh, uh, if you, uh, in my book, I show the photograph of a, a little girl with no cortex and her baby brother is placed on her lap and she goes, ah, oh, she likes it. You know, uh, then you take the baby brother away. She goes, ah, 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 ah. she complains. Um, then you tickle her and she giggles. Um, and then you uh, give her a fright and she startles, etc. You know, I'm, 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 I'm uh, um, just randomly giving you examples of what I mean by appropriate emotional responses. Um, they even play with toys. You know, if you, they, they, they're very, very impaired. They can't, they, they, they're wheelchair bound. Uh, but if you put this little frame uh, over the wheelchair with little toys hanging there, they, they hit the toys and they gurgle with delight. You know, they, 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 and, 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 and like with the little brother, you take the toys away, they complain and they look, where's the toy? And so on. So by no stretch of the imagination can these children be described as unconscious, uh, even even if the word unconscious is limited to non-responsive wakefulness, there's no way you can describe them as non-responsive. So there's only one possible conclusion that can be drawn from the, uh, this uh, uh, set of observations, because I'm not describing one child. I'm describing, you know, a whole uh, lots of kids uh, who born without cortex. Uh, this is how they are. This is, this is the, the only ones who are non-responsive are the ones who are treated as if they're in a vegetative state. And it, it upsets me to even tell you this. But in the old days, by which I mean you know, from the 1980s backwards, because it was only in the 1990s that this that, that, that uh, a, a wonderful pediatric neurologist by the name of David Schumann, uh, he said, maybe these kids are so unresponsive because nobody's interacting with them. They just leave them uh, you know, like Romanian orphans. There's nothing wrong with the Romanian orphans' brains, uh, but they were just completely and utterly neglected. And so eventually they just fade away. Um, and Schumann was saying, well, maybe this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe if we actually treat these kids as if there's somebody at home, you know, and this was in the context of the whole of our, in neurology, there was a whole lot of rethinking of what do we mean by coma? How do we know there's nobody there? And there were some shocking discoveries, like, for example, the locked-in syndrome, uh, where the patients were completely unable to move. I mean, literally unable to lift a finger. Um, but they were entirely normally conscious. They were aware of everything going on around them, but they just couldn't respond. And so they were mistaken uh, to be in a coma. So it was in that clinical context that people were beginning to realize we mustn't be so uh, rash in our judgments about what's going on inside. You know, we need to probe it more. So Schumann did so and then uh, found that these babies are, are responsive. And then as they grow up in toddlerhood and, you know, into childhood and, you know, some of them live well into adolescence and so on, uh, that, that they are fully responsive emotional beings. Um, and, uh, and it's, 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 it's it's really shocking. Uh, I mean, I, I keep on being distracted by the ethical implications of what we're talking about. I had a colleague um, uh, uh, in Australia uh, who had a, uh, a she was a, a medical colleague, a psychiatrist who had a child uh, with hydranencephaly, um, and the uh, this and the child needed an operation on its skull um, because the fontanelle uh, failed to close, and the surgeon, the neurosurgeon, said to her, "You don't. The child doesn't need an anaesthetic." Because it's got no cortex, it's unconscious. You know, I mean, this is the kind of this is the kind of thing. This is not a philosophical matter. You know, um, so so the only possible conclusion we can come to um, is that um, the the brain stem uh, is responsible not only for reflexes. Um, it's not just a, an automaton. It's not just a machine. Uh, it's not just a vegetable. That's where the word vegetative state comes from. That there is some form of sentience, some form of conscious presence that's generated by the brainstem. And that form of conscious presence is feeling. Uh, in, in other words, I'm not saying these kids uh, have normal perception, memory, uh, thought, uh, anything of that kind. Uh, all I'm saying is that the evidence suggests that they are conscious in the sense that they have raw feelings uh, and that they don't just have 
good and bad feelings. They have a variety of feelings uh, and they display uh, the, the, the behaviorally, they display those feelings in situationally appropriate fashion. So I'll say it again because I want to be sure that what I'm, what I'm uh, concluding from these uh, kids um, is that they are conscious in the most basic sense of the word uh, and that the most basic sense of the word means affectively conscious. In other words, emotionally conscious. They can feel things like hunger and thirst and irritability and joy um, uh, uh, and, and surprise and so on. Th that's what the evidence suggests. Now, um, before I go on, uh, I want to pause for a moment and tell you that what I've just said to you, many of my colleagues dispute it. Uh, they say, well, you know, it's possible, but how do you know? Uh, you, you, they can't tell you what they feel. Um, and this, this is called the reportability criterion. If you can't report an experience, how do you know it's there? So let me just dwell on that for a moment. Uh, because they, these colleagues exist, uh, they seriously claim that these children might look as if they're conscious, but not be conscious. Uh, and, 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 and why is that? It's because they can't tell us that they're conscious. So, so, so let, let's just unpack that for a moment. Any of you who have pet dogs uh, and cats, uh, they don't report to you uh, that they're hungry or, or that they, or that they're protecting that they feel territorial when there's an intruder, uh, or that they, that they, uh, fighting with each other and feeling rage, you know, at, uh, and that they miss you when you walk out the door and when they're pining for you, you know, they don't say, I'm missing you, but they show that they're missing you. They show that their joy, they show their playfulness, they show their fear, they show their anger, and so on. Um, so if reportability uh, is the requirement for, um, for, for uh, um, inferring the presence of feelings, uh, then we have to say, well, Dogs and cats are probably, uh, possibly, just like these children. Possibly, they're just zombies. You know, they're like they're like complicated robots uh, that that are doing all these things that look like feelings, but they're not feelings. Mark you, it also implies that every baby is unconscious. Uh, every preverbal uh, 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 infant uh, is unconscious until they start learning how to say, "Mommy, I feel like something." You know, uh, if they can't tell you, "I am hungry." And, but they're screaming blue murder, looking for the nipple. Um, you know, you, you have to assume that they're feeling hungry, surely. Uh, even if they don't have a word for it, they're showing it from by their behavior. Um, I'm saying that's all I'm asking for in the case of these kids. I'm saying just, you know, just join the dots. It's obvious that they're feeling something, just as obvious as it is that a pre any other preverbal child or dog or cat uh, is conscious. Um, but it's, it, it doesn't end there. In fact, let me just say one more thing about reportability. I think it's a silly criterion for consciousness for the reasons that I've already said. But, but let me give you another example. Um, there, there can be a complicated robot, um, which is not conscious, which can have built into it um, the, the algorithm that whenever anybody says to you, how do you feel? You know, you just spew out this thing. I feel good or I feel bad or I feel sleepy. You know, it's possible to have a robot that reports. Uh, so the, in fact, when you're on the internet and you're asked to confirm that you're not a robot, uh, it doesn't say, please report that you're not a robot because a robot can report that it's not a robot. Uh, uh, you know, what you're required to do is to perform a task, usually a disambiguation task, uh, which is behavioral evidence that you're not a robot, you know, that you actually are there solving the problem, uh, 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 recognizing what's, what's required here and judging it and coming up with the correct answer. You know, that's so we, we normally use behavior as a, in fact, when we assess level of consciousness in the neurosurgical wards, um, as the patient is emerging from from a, from a coma, obviously they can't speak to us. We, we judge by their behavior, by their response uh, to uh, stimuli, uh, by their response to to touch, by their response to pain, uh, by their response to light and dark, uh, and ultimately by their response to verbal instruction. Uh, long before they're able to actually speak to us, we can see there's more and more consciousness, you know, a, a, a arising. 
um, we never worry that the patient uh, might in fact be a zombie behaving as if they're conscious. It's the other way around. We worry that they might in fact be conscious and we don't realize it because they're, they're unable to demonstrate it, even though they have it. Um, but uh, 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 that even all of that is not all that I want to say about what the evidence is for my proposition. And I want to say that proposition again, uh, it is that all that you need uh, in order to have raw feelings, that, that is conscious qualities in the form of affective states, all that you need for that is a brainstem. Now, I told you that these kids suggest that, uh, but my colleagues say, well, how do you know? They can't tell you. So I'll, I, the only thing that a scientist can do in a situation like that is to say, okay, this method, um, like all scientific methods, has its limitations, it has its strengths and its weaknesses. The method here being the lesion method, in other words, showing what happens when an area is damaged. I'm saying that if you can have no cortex and still there's 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 emotional behavior there, uh, then you have to infer the cortex doesn't generate emotional behavior. But, but that's just one method. The problem with it is, well, those kids can't tell you. So, okay, let's use another method. Uh, that's what you do in science. You look for converging lines of evidence that converge on the same conclusion. So um, if the if the brainstem uh, is where the affects are being generated, they're actually generated in the brainstem by the brainstem, not in the cortex, um, then um, we have a, a method called positron emission tomography, uh, which enables you to see to, to, on a brain scan, uh, you can see which part of the brain is activated uh, when the person is performing one or another task. Uh, and we do that by, by measuring the, the metabolic rate of the cells. So the cells that are firing more are the ones that are doing whatever it is uh, that, that, that leads to that behavior. So for this study, my colleague, uh, my, my dear colleague, Antonio Damasio, uh, he took research participants, in fact, they were actors, uh, trained actors, um, and he got them to build themselves up into intense affective states. So as actors can do, you know, so that the person's really feeling rage and really feeling fear and really feeling joy um, and and um, really feeling sad. Those were the four emotional states that he got them to conjure up in themselves. And then they indicated to him when they were in that state, when they were feeling intense uh, uh, fear, rage, a sadness or joy. And then uh, he, he took a scan positron emission scan. Now, according to my hypothesis, uh, you can predict what you will see uh, is that the, the, the activity in the brain uh, corresponding to these intense, raw emotional states will be in the brain stem. And that, that prediction is confirmed. That's what you see. Uh, the cortex is not what lights up. It's the brain stem. In all four of those affects, the, 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 uh, uh, the cells that fire uh, when you're in that state are subcortical uh, and primarily in the brainstem. So that's the second method. Uh, let's look at a third method. Um, this method, uh, it, it, please remember, if it was the cortex that was responsible for feeling, uh, then you would expect the brain activity to be cortical. Um, the, let me just say something about the lesion method while I'm at it. Um, in fact, uh, we often see patients who are too emotional, neurological patients who are overwhelmed by emotion. Uh, where is the damage in those patients? It's in the cortex, principally in the frontal cortex. So if the cortex was generating the emotion, you take away cortex, you should have less emotion. But what you have is the opposite. You take away cortex, I don't mean we take it away surgically, I mean, you know, due to strokes or or tumors or abscesses or whatever, uh, the brain, the cortex is damaged. What you find is hyper-emotionality. You find emotional disinhibition, which implies the cortex is inhibiting the emotion, not generating it. It's, it's, it's containing it. Um, so, but uh, I'm, I'm losing uh, my sequence. So I've spoken about the lesion method. I've spoken about positron emission tomography, also known as PET imaging. Uh, now let's go to another method. Uh, this is deep brain stimulation. Uh, if you take an electrode and you push it into the brain, 
and you stimulate a particular area, you're then artificially activating that area. And then you can see what happens. Uh, that tells you what that area does. Say if you activate the left motor cortex, it makes the right hand move. Uh, if you activate the left sensory cortex, it makes the left hand numb. Um, if you activate the visual cortex, it makes the patient see something, you know, and so on. So if you put an electrode deep into the brain stem, into some nuclei called the reticular activating system, which I mentioned in part one of this conversation, if you put this, uh, if you put the electrode into the reticular activating system, uh, what you would predict on my theory is that you will generate an intense emotional state. Uh, and these patients have cortex, so they can tell you what they, what they're experiencing. And so when we do that, when we put an electrode deep into the reticular activating system, the patients report the most intense affective states imaginable. And they report the widest range of affective states. No, nowhere else in the brain do you get such intense affect and such a wide range of affect than from stimulating the reticular activating system and another little nucleus 14 millimeters long behind the reticular activating system called the periaqueductal gray, PAG. So just so that you understand what I'm saying, if you apply similar uh, brain stimulation to the cortex, you get no affect. Uh, you occasionally get mild, muted little affects. Um, you might get like a thought about an affect, uh, but you don't get these overwhelming fears, rages, orgasms, you know, you name it. Every kind of intense affectivity under the sun is generated by stimulating those, those nuclei. Now, uh, my colleagues, my, my colleagues who do animal experiments, uh, they've done this on all sorts of animals. Um, and we've mapped out on the basis of that, uh, not only that you, where in the brain you can generate these intense affects, but also which part of the brain stem generates which affect. So they're specific. You know, this one you'd stimulate it and it causes intense uh, yeah, this one you stimulated, it causes intense rage. This one you stimulated, it causes intense playfulness. This one, orgasm. This one, um, hunger. This one, you know, thirst and so on. So it seems as if these uh, uh, intricate nuclei um, uh, in the reticular activating system and PAG are where all this affective circuitry uh, is, is compa compactly uh, 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 where it resides. But I, I just mentioned animals. Now, we do it with human beings, too, obviously not for experimental purposes. Um, but uh, we, we, we uh, not so occasionally, we, we quite regularly have to put electrodes into the brainstem, particularly into the PAG, um, because uh, one of the areas of the PAG is where you generate pain. And so patients who have chronic pain syndromes, for whom we can do nothing, nothing else works, uh, we put an electrode into that pain-specific part of the PAG, and we give a high-voltage stimulus, which blocks high-voltage stimuli block activity um, in that part of the brain. So we use it um, as an analgesic. Um, quite regularly, we put uh, deep brain stimulators into the PAG to treat chronic pain. While we're at it, uh, the patient, some patients volunteer to let us, uh, 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 you know, uh, try uh, stimulate with low voltage, stimulate a few other areas in the PAG to see whether they have the feelings that we see the behavior correlates of in animals. Uh, and that is uh, abundantly confirmed uh, that exactly the feelings that you would expect uh, the human being to feel and to be able to report is what we find when we stimulate these different sites in the PAG. So all of the affects I mentioned a moment ago, these patients tell us I feel overwhelming dread. You know, it's like a wave's coming at me. Oh my God, switch it off, you know, or Ooh, do that some more. That's quite delicious, you know, and so on. Um, and also we put deep brain uh, stimulators into uh, the brain for the treatment of movement disorders, to, uh, particularly Parkinson's disease. And occasionally, uh, you know, the, these electrodes have nodes. Uh, there's not just one uh, a, a stimulator point on the electrode. We have a range of them because you want to try which is the spot that works best. Um, and sometimes some of those nodes go a little deeper than intended. 
uh, and then you have an opportunity to see what happens if you stimulate structures other than the motor structures that you were aiming for. Because you must remember, the brainstem is a tiny little place. So you can very easily go just a little bit too far, um, and then you're in an entirely different structure. When we do that, uh, and we stimulate reticular activating nuclei, what we get is intense emotions. So the prediction that that's what you would, which, that's what you would get if I'm right, that those structures are generating not blank wakefulness, but rather raw feeling, uh, that prediction is confirmed uh, in, in, in patients who can report. So we get around this reportability problem. So remember now we've got lesion evidence and PET imaging evidence and deep brain stimulation evidence all leading to the same conclusion. And when it comes to the cortex, against that, the opposite of what we would expect if the cortex was making the feelings. Uh, I've already said, stimulating the cortex, you don't get feelings like, like what I've just described. Um, uh, one last bit of evidence that I want to mention is chemical pharmacological probes. If it were true that all that the reticular activating system is providing is blank wakefulness, uh, then you might expect, well, anesthetists would be interested in this part of the brain because the, the drugs that they give switch on the lights and switch off the lights. Um, and as it happens, they are interested in that part of the brain because uh, it does switch off the lights and switch on the lights. But when you switch the lights on, you're also switching feeling on. Um, and, and the evidence for that is that all the mainstream psychopharmacological agents, in other words, all the mainstream psychiatric drugs, um, the, the chemical, the, 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 the neurotransmitters that they act on, uh, that they increase or decrease artificially through the imbibing of these drugs, those neurochemicals um, are the very neurochemicals that are that are sourced in the reticular activating system. So that, um, for example, antidepressants, everybody knows antidepressants boost serotonin. Serotonin is sourced in the reticular activating system um, uh, in, in a thing called the RAFE nuclei. Uh, so the, the, uh, the, the, the source cells for serotonin, uh, the, the thing that is being boosted by antidepressants are in the reticular activating system. The same applies to um, dopamine, uh, which we've spoken about before. Uh, dopamine is sourced, uh, at least in part, it's sourced in the substantia nigra. Uh, in the other part, it's sourced in the ventral tegmental area. Both of these are parts of the reticular activating system. And antipsychotics act on dopamine. Antipsychotics, as I told you in one of the earlier parts of our conversation, are dopamine blockers. The same applies to noradrenaline. If you block noradrenaline, you, you, you diminish anxiety. It's an anti-anxiety drug. And uh, the, the, the source uh, nucleus for noradrenaline is the locus ceruleus complex, which is part of the reticular activating system. So psyche, the mainstream psychiatric medications are acting on the reticular activating system. It's not just anesthetists who are interested in this part of the brain. It's psychiatrists. And what do, what do psychiatrists treat? They treat feelings. You know, so in fact, uh, when my kids were young, one of them said to a friend of theirs, asked, what does your father do? And, and my son said, he's a doctor for feelings. <laughs> and uh, I think that, uh, that that's a pretty good description of what a psychiatrist is. So all of this evidence converges on the conclusion uh, that the brainstem generates consciousness and that consciousness has a quality and a content which we call affect. And I told you that some of my colleagues uh, still have difficulty with that. But, you know, in that case, they have, they have to show me the evidence uh, that, that, that proves me wrong because there's overwhelming evidence that proves me right. Now I'll tell you something else that's even more astonishing. Uh, now I'm saying that um, this evidence leads me to the conclusion uh, that, that affect is actually generated in the brainstem. Um, and I'm not the only one. Please uh, let me uh, 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 add uh, Antonio Damasio, who I mentioned a minute ago, uh, Jak Panksepp, who we've mentioned before, uh, Bjorn Merker, uh, the, the guy who took these kids uh, uh, um, uh, 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 to uh, Disney World. Um, we all agree, but there's just many who don't agree. Um, and, and they don't agree on the basis that I told you earlier. They're saying that the brainstem, they, they accept that these 
that these kids are, are awake, but they don't accept that, it, that their consciousness has any content. Um, the, 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 the incredible thing now is this. So now I'm telling you something else uh, added to what I've already claimed. Um, in 1949, long, long ago, um, two neurophysiologists, uh, Magoon and Maruzzi, uh, were doing experiments on cats. Um, they were they were doing experiments on consciousness, on sleep and wakefulness. Remember, in the old days, that was the only kind of consciousness that we that was a respectable topic. So they were trying to find out uh, how cats uh, wake up and go to sleep. What part of the brain uh, is is regulating this? And they thought it had to do with information coming in through the senses. That if information is pouring into the cortex from the sense organs, then you're awake. And if you deprive uh, yourself of all of this input, which we do every night by closing our eyes and you know, uh, um, uh, drawing the curtains and, uh, and lying still, uh, that uh, this, this seems to be what induces sleep, is that there's no, no uh, perceptual stimuli flowing in anymore. So that's what Magoon and Maruzzi believe would apply to these cats, just, just as we all did. Um, but what they found was completely unexpected. Uh, that uh, you can deprive cats of sensory stimuli. You can do it by ghoulish experiments. Uh, they they carry on being awake. Um, they're just awake without vision or awake without hearing or awake without any perceptual uh, input, but they're still awake. Um, and what, what they found was where you need to damage the, the poor cat's brain in order to take away wakefulness, in other words, to put it into a coma, is in the brain stem. Uh, in the reticular activating system. So that's how we discovered the reticular activating system. That's why it's called the reticular activating system. In 1949 already, we realized uh, that this is what switches on the lights. But because we had this assumption from hundreds of four hundreds of years that the cortex is where the consciousness is, Magoon and Maruzzi explained their findings by saying um, that the Brain stem, the reticular activating system, must be like a power source. Um, it's they, they accepted, they could see. Uh, you can't have cortical consciousness without the reticular activating system activating the cortex. Um, and in fact, uh, they did this experiment to prove that. They, they, they made a little incision above the reticular activating system, disconnecting the cortex from the reticular activating system. And with that, the cortical lights went out. Uh, so. Um, the, the cortex, everybody agrees, including all the colleagues who I was saying don't agree with me. Uh, they all agree that you can't have consciousness without a reticular activating system. That is the power source. But they say it's a power source in the same way as a television set has to be plugged in at the wall. Uh, if you unplug the television set, of course, it doesn't do television anymore. Uh, that's because it's a prerequisite. You have to have it has to be booted up with a power supply. But that power supply doesn't have content and quality. The televisual content and quality that you see on the screen uh, is produced by the machinery inside the television set and the and the, and its connectivity to the signal source. Um, it's not produced by the power source plugged in at the wall. So that's how they understood it, uh, and that's how from 1949 until the 1990s, that's how we understood it. Um, uh, that's why the evidence that I've just uh, told, uh, uh, outlined for you, not just the hydranencephalic kids, but the gamut of evidence that I've summarized for you, that's why it's so important, because it shows that it's not just a power source. Um, that the, Or if you want to call uh, the reticular activating system the power source of cortical consciousness, that's fine as long as you accept that that power source has a quality and a content. And so the power source is feeling. And, and that's basically my claim. So it's a twofold claim. Uh, the, the one claim is that the, the power source, the, the, the fundamental source, in fact, my, my book's title, The Hidden Spring, the spring from which consciousness uh, uh, erupts, where the bubbles up from, uh, is the reticular activating system. Uh, that it is the subtitle of my book, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. That's the source of consciousness. Uh, so that's my first claim. But remember, we've known that since 1949. So my second claim is that 
the source of consciousness, uh, the, 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 the fundamental uh, uh, power supply of consciousness uh, has, the, has the quality and content of feeling. So the most fundamental, elemental, rudimentary form of consciousness is feeling. Uh, and this is prerequisite for all other types of consciousness. Uh, that, that's the claim. Now, um, uh, uh, Aiden, you said that the chapter that we're talking about in my book has the title, The Cortical Fallacy. The fallacy that we're talking about um, is the fallacy that, that, that consciousness, uh, in the sense of having uh, a, a quality and the content of experience, what the philosophers call qualia, uh, a qualia, the qualitative stuff uh, of, of consciousness, uh, the cortical fallacy is that that stuff uh, is is contingent upon intact cortex, that the cortex is where that stuff is generated. Uh, uh, I'm saying that's not true. Uh, that stuff in its most rudimentary form, the form that is prerequisite for all other forms of consciousness, uh, that stuff is generated in the reticular activating system. I'm not saying that the cortex does nothing. Of course, the cortex does a lot. Uh, and but that is derivative from, in every sense of the word, it's derivative, evolutionarily derivative from, it's developmentally derivative from, it's physiologically derivative from the brainstem form of consciousness, which is raw feeling. And when you think about it, it's not such an astonishing thing. I mean, where did feeling come from? Uh, what I'm saying is the first form of the the first form of consciousness, uh, the dawn of consciousness probably took the form of raw feelings, of just a, a, a creature uh, becoming aware that it's hungry, uh, or a creature becoming, a, which just means that it's, it senses its lack of energy supplies. Uh, it senses its lack of hydration. It becomes thirsty. It senses a, a, a damaging uh, stimulus. It feels pain. It doesn't have to have any thoughts about this. It just reacts to those things. Uh, and it's a it's a jolly good thing, biologically speaking, you know, to to know uh, that things are going well or badly in terms of these very basic parameters of 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 of, of the body, which we discussed also in part one of this conversation. Um, I, I'm I'm saying that probably was the first form of consciousness, uh, and then everything else is built up from there. If you want to understand consciousness, start with its simplest form, start with its earliest form, start with its basic form. Uh, that that's what I'm arguing. In the in the chapter on the cortical fallacy, what I go on to show, because I then I ask myself, well, where did this idea come from? Why did we think it's in the cortex uh, that, that consciousness starts? Uh, why we thought so? If you go back into the early, it doesn't start that that idea doesn't start with neuroscience. By the way, it starts with philosophy. Uh, it's in fact, it probably starts with common sense. Uh, in the in that when you experience consciousness, what you're aware of is I'm seeing things, I'm hearing things, I'm touching things. That's my consciousness. So it's a perfectly understandable um, mistake uh, to think that consciousness flows in through my sense organs. Like Magoon and Maruzzi thought about those cats. Uh, they thought that consciousness uh, is stimulated by uh, extraceptive sensory stimuli and that it takes these various forms. Now has these various qualities, visual, auditory, somatosensory, olfactory, gustatory, um, um, but by virtue of it being different senses. Each one of our perceptual modalities is attached to a different sense. But what's left out of that is that those five so-called, uh, the five uh, uh, modalities of consciousness, the five senses, um, th there's a sixth sense, uh, and that's feeling, affect, emotion. It doesn't flow in from the outside. Uh, it comes from within. It's about your state. It's not about the world. It's about how you feel about the world and 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 how you feel about about yourself. Um, so the, the the cortical fallacy began uh, with the uh, from the notion, the commonsensical notion uh, that that consciousness uh, is perceptual in nature. Um, Hume and Locke. Then formalized that into their early philosophy of mind, which was called empiricism. Uh, empiricism just means derived from experience. So it, it, it's uh, the, the, the meaning of empiricist uh, philosophy, which ends up becoming uh, applied to 
the, the basic methods of science, which is they're empirical. In other words, we come to our scientific conclusions on the basis of observational data. It's empirical. It's learned from experience. Um, their, their philosophy was that the mind is, is empirical in the sense that it's derived from experience. So not just these perceptual inputs, uh, but memory traces, uh, impressions as they call them, uh, like, you know, the, the input, the, they thought of the brain as something like a, a tablet or so, you know, that, it, that, that they said these vibrations come in uh, and they leave impressions uh, in the cortex. Why did they think in the cortex? It's because the, 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 the early, not, well, uh, uh, you didn't say the cortex. Uh, they, they said the mind. The mind for them was made up of memories. Um, memories of perceptual inputs, those memories then get associated with each other, and these are ideas. Um, again, perfectly fine. It seems like, you know, I, 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 it doesn't seem crazy that they would have thought that. Um, what it leaves out of account is what's coming from within. Um, the, the, those things they, they recognize, they call them the passions. Um, but they didn't think of them as part of the mind. They thought of them as kind of part of the body. They were like animal things, these passions. Um, they didn't deny that we have passions and that they're conscious. Uh, but to them, uh, the, what was mental was this cognitive stuff um, uh, derived, you remember, based in, fundamentally in memory, in memory traces from previous perceptual experiences, which then get associated with each other to, 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 to generate understanding um, uh, and so on. They called that apperception. The early anatomists applied human locks philosophy to when they started tracing these nerves and saw they all go to the cortex. Uh, they, and the cortex is big place. And, uh, and they thought, well, this must be where all the memory traces are, um, which is a perfectly reasonable hypothesis once more. Uh, before I go on to tell you more, let me just point out those nerves that go to the cortex also go to the brain stem. Um, it's just that in the brain stem, uh, they don't generate conscious images. They, 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 it's unconscious information going into the brain stem, generating feelings, like in those little kids with no cortex. They have feelings. They just don't know what the feelings are about. They don't understand the feelings, but they have them. Um, so, but they trace the, what those, the nerves, uh, those that go to the cortex and thought, well, these must be the ones that lead to the, to the, to the memory traces and therefore to the mind. Um, and, and I, w I went into the early literature, uh, the early neuropsychological literature that, that from 1870s, 1880s. Um, and when you read it, they're not saying consciousness, um, is, is about the cortex is, is for consciousness. They're saying the cortex is for memory. Uh, the, 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 and they did all kinds of horrible experiments on dogs those days seem to be more the victims uh, than cats. Um, and uh, they showed that when you remove um, auditory cortex, the, the, the dog still hears in the sense that it still responds to auditory stimuli, but it no longer responds to its name. It, 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 the, the, the scientist who made this observation, his name was Goltz, he said that the dogs are idiotish, uh, the, which is German for idiotic. In other words, you know, they don't understand anything. They're stupid. Uh, but he didn't say they're deaf. Uh, likewise. Um, with visual cortex, uh, the, the dogs uh, are not blind. They still are able to avoid um, objects. They're still able to navigate the world visually, but they no longer recognize that's my feeding bowl, that's my owner, you know, and so on. So they're, they're not blind, but they show no visual understanding. The German term for those dogs was Seelenblindheit, in, in other words, mind blindness. And the and the, the the hearing they called it Zelentaubheit, mind deafness, not deafness, mind deafness, which which shows lack of understanding, not lack of lack of raw sensation, and um, and, and then uh, human patients with cortical lesions were described uh, by people. Uh, I don't need to go into all of the names: Gilbrandt, Wernicke, and, and, and so on. And they found the equivalent sorts of things happening in human beings. Uh, with cortical damage, uh, but they didn't describe it in terms of raw sensation. They described it in terms of understanding. Um, and uh, while I'm at it, I must just mention Freud was a, a neuroscientist and a, a neuro 
anatomist and a neuropsychologist in those years, and he played a part in all of that. Um, in fact, what we what 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 we originally called mind blindness, uh, Freud renamed agnosia, visual agnosia, he called it, and that became the standard name for it. Um, so, in fact, um, all along, uh, just because the the um, for the empiricist philosophers, uh, the notion of a mind was in, intimately bound up with the notion of memory, of learning from experience. Um, the, the two things became conflated. Mind is consciousness. Uh, um, therefore, the cortex uh, is the organ of consciousness. But really, uh, the cortex is the organ of memory, uh, of, a, and, and of a particular kind of memory, what we call declarative memory, which is memory that you can be aware of. There was an article that came out just, I think, last week um, in the in the neuropsychological literature. Everyone's uh, uh, very excited about it because it's uh, it's showing that cortical consciousness is not here and now. Uh, it's actually just a few seconds later than here and now. It's actually or half a half a second later, sort of five hundred milliseconds later than the here and now, and that it's actually a replaying of what's just happened. In other words, cortical consciousness is actually memory. Well, uh, I'm glad to say uh, Aiden will will uh, will vouch for me. That's what I said in my book one year ago. Uh, that cortex is is actually the organ of memory, uh, and those memories are rendered conscious when they are aroused by the reticular activating system. Otherwise, the cortex processes these memories unconsciously, uh, and that's also a very important point that I would like to make: is that the cortex can do all of its memory processing, the, the, the basic stuff of cognition, which is derived from memory, uh, that all cognition is derived from memory, just as the British empiricists said, although obviously in much more complicated ways than they ever dreamt of, um, that that stuff that the cortex does, it can also do unconsciously, um, so that you can see and hear unconsciously. Um, there's oodles of evidence for that. Nobody doubts that. Uh, you can not just see in the raw sense of uh, that I'm talking about this raw sensation. Uh, the cortical part um, is that uh, you can read, uh, you can recognize faces, that sort of thing, which is dependent upon cortex, which is dependent upon these these this higher forms of memory. You can do that unconsciously. There's lots of experimental evidence that you can read with comprehension. Uh, without without being conscious that you read anything, that you can recognize a face without being conscious that you saw anything, that, that you can link the words and the faces, by the way, also without being aware that you did it. So uh, what I'm leading up to is that the cortex can do all of its cognitive gymnastics unconsciously, which begs, which raises the question, well, then why is it ever conscious? If the cortex can do all this stuff unconsciously, you know, consciousness is such a troublesome thing. Why, why don't we just leave out the consciousness and why aren't we all just zombies uh, uh, processing all of this memory and learning uh, uh, and, and, uh, and, and acting uh, rationally uh, without any feeling? If cortex can do it without any feeling. Um, and so uh, that's a very important question, which I address. It's a, one of the major questions I address in my book, which is what is feeling for? Uh, what does feeling add? To this intrinsically unconscious uh, cortical processing, what does what does consciousness feeling your way into the, your cognitions, which are intrinsically unconscious? What does that add to those intrinsically unconscious cognitions? Uh, in other words, why do we ever have conscious cognition? Um, and uh, I, I'm not going to try and answer that right now, but it's a it's a question we must get to. Uh, one last point. I think I might have said that three times, but this is one last point, um, which is that. Please note, cortex is not intrinsically conscious. It, it derives its consciousness from the brainstem. The functions of the cortex, in other words, cognition, are not intrinsically conscious. They only become conscious when they're aroused or activated, modulated by the brainstem. Uh, so cortex was the wrong place to look for trying to understand uh, what the neural correlate of consciousness is. Uh, we should have been looking to the reticular activating system because the function of the reticular activating system is to activate. The function, the intrinsic function of the reticular activating system is to generate feeling, which I'm saying is the, the most fundamental form of consciousness. There's no consciousness that's blank. 
consciousness is felt. Um, and that's that, that, that's the essence of the the, 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 the the elementary form of consciousness. Uh, so that tissue, uh, reticular activating systems uh, tissue, is intrinsically for producing consciousness, whereas the cortex is intrinsically for producing memory, which might or might not be rendered conscious uh, by the reticular activating system. So let me stop my long-winded um, monologue there. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mark. Loads of stuff coming to mind, and I didn't want to interrupt your flow because it was great to hear you make the point and do it so brilliantly. Just two things, really, because we don't have much time. You have an appointment now. One is the reticular activating system. From a, We've talked about it on this show before, believe it or not. We, we talk about it as, well, what I deem as important to me, it's, it's you know, we you talk about the law of attraction or you know, I, I'm going to buy a new black BMW, I've never thought about it before. And all of a sudden, I see it everywhere. The origin, what we're told is the science behind it's the reticular activating system, because you've made it important to you. And so now it's looking out for you. So beyond your work about the hidden spring and consciousness, I think it's got such a, a an important function in our how we show up in the world and how we experience the world. And even down to I tell my kids, my kids know about the reticular activating system, they're nine and 12. And the reason they do is I tell them what they think about at nighttime, in theta, which we'll talk about in a, another episode, when they're at theta brainwave state, they have access to the reticular activating system. So they're programming it then to experience that world. And that's why things like gratitude, journaling, what your thoughts are at night, and all those things are so important. Maybe you have a thought on that, because that's a very useful thing for all of us to bring with us. Yes, I, I think that what you're saying uh, just illustrates the, the basic point that um, we there's all this information around us. We, our brains are processing it all the time, but we're not conscious of all of it. The parts that we're conscious of are the parts that we pay attention to. Uh, in other words, the parts that matter to us. Um, that are salient, to use the technical term, and that this salience, uh, there are two things about it. Uh, the one is that it is, it is uh, the, the, the spotlight is directed by a reticular activating arousal. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that it is fundamentally about feelings. You know, what's, what's, what matters to us fundamentally um, has to do with, you were speaking of attraction to black BMWs, you know, attraction, repulsion, this is, this is good. This is bad. Um, and the rest of it is all just detail. Mark, I thought we'd leave our audience with a joke. This was with your patient. Uh, it wasn't meant to be a joke. <laughs> but your patient, Mr. W, which was a, a lovely little story that you had from the book. So perhaps we'll tell our audience this as a, as a farewell for today. Yes. Um, in fact, I believe it or not, I, I inhibited myself when I was telling you this story about the cortical fallacy. I, and I said, let me give you all the different sets of evidence. There's a lot more evidence that I, I, I thought I don't have time to go into all of that, so I left it out. So I'm delighted that you mentioned that. The most uh, influential cortical theory of consciousness is called the global workspace theory. Uh, according to this global workspace theory, the cortex, as I've already told you, is, is, is processing all this information, but it's not doing so consciously. Uh, in order for it to become conscious, it has to enter the global workspace. So uh, that is that is all of these different parallel channels. Uh, they 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 all have, only those channels which which ignite the global workspace, which is the dorsolateral frontal convexity, uh, which is a sort of re-representation. So you're representing the world, and then you re-represent it in the global workspace. That's that's the this subset of your cortical processing that becomes conscious. Now uh, that theory. Uh, leads to a testable prediction, which is what happens if you have no prefrontal cortex. Uh, you should you should should not have this global workspace. Um, and uh, I uh, had the good fortune uh, for me, but bad fortune for the patient uh, of of having a patient with no prefrontal cortex whatsoever. I won't go into the, all the medical details as to how that happened, but in my book I show the scans. He's got no prefrontal cortex. But he has got a little sliver of cortex um, on either side uh, in the language area on the left-hand side, which enables him to speak. And so uh, I said to him, you know, according to um, my colleagues of, uh, who, who believe in this very influential theory, you should be unconscious. Um, are you unconscious? He said, no, I'm not. 
So, and please note, he's reporting. So um, I said to him, well, in particular, they're saying that you will have visual and auditory and so on information processing going on, but you won't be able to represent it in your consciousness. Can you do that? He said, yes, I can. So I said, well, do you mind if I test it? Um, I'm going to ask you to visualize something um, in your mind's eye and become conscious of it. So he says, okay. So I said, to prove that you can do it, he says, okay. So I said, imagine uh, in your mind's eye that you have two dogs and one chicken. And I, it's an odd situation because I wanted it to be something that he hadn't thought of before. And so, you know, to prove he's picturing it here and now. So I said, imagine you have two dogs and one chicken. He says, yes. I said, are you picturing it now? He says, yes. I said, can you now count the legs? How many legs do you see in total? Uh, and of course, the answer is 10. Uh, two dogs and one chicken. So he said, you can imagine my disappointment. He said, eight. And I said, eight? And he said, yes, the dogs ate the chicken. <laughs> and as you say, he, he, he delivered that punchline with a mischievous grin. Sounds like he was conscious and sounds like context to me. And please note feelings. You know, uh, he, It's a common thing with these patients with, with frontal damage that they tell puerile jokes. It's called Witzelzucht. And um, so it's a common observation as part of a bigger uh, phenomenon with them, which is emotional disinhibition. They're hyper-emotional. And remember, I'm saying that shows you that the frontal cortex can't be where the emotions are made. Beautiful. What a, a perfect way to finish right on time as well, Mark. And you mentioned feelings, you men mentioned affects, very important terms. And the next day, please join us when we talk about the taxonomy by your friend, Jak Pranksepp, who gave us this beautiful taxonomy, but you then map it to your work as well. So what each of these feelings actually means to us and then we'll build on that going forward because there's so much more you talked about inhibition there for example the PAG the that right behind at the back of the reticular activating system as an orchestrator uh, inhibiting and allowing all this type of thing I, I absolutely love these chapters and then brain waves you talk about as well everything's in this book and it's beautifully written as well some beautiful passages great case studies as well done by the man himself the author of the hidden spring a journey to the source of consciousness we now know why it's called that name mark soames thank you for joining us thanks, thanks for your interest till next time